I ask you to take a copy of God's Word this morning, and if you'll turn open to the book of Hebrews, here's in a Bible, pew Bible there, right in the rack in front of you, you can turn right to the page number 1003, turn to Hebrews chapter 4 this morning, as we continue our way through this book. This morning, Hebrews chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 12 and 13, Hebrews chapter 4. And let's pray before we open the Word together this morning. Our Father, we confess even as we sit here this morning that Our hearts are often like stone. Some in this room, no doubt, have been perpetually stone. So we pray this morning that you would break up where our hearts are stone, that you would make them malleable, that you would make them receptacles for sowing of the seed of Your Word as it goes out this morning. Pray that where there is hardness of heart, that You would root it out. Pray that where there is darkness, You would bring light. Speak to us, O Lord. May we know that we have heard from You today as we depart this place. We pray all of this in the strong name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to back up to verse 11, which is 11 through 13. Our text this morning are verses 12 and 13. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience in our verses this morning. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Recently read of an elderly French woman who had for years been cooking over a stovetop in her kitchen and above her stovetop decades before she had put on the wall above a stovetop an icon, the icon painting and she would look at it every time that she was she was cooking on that stovetop, and as the years passed and she was getting older, this was just a couple of years ago, she decided to save her family some time and energy and that she would begin to auction off 
different things that she owned so that it would be easier on them. And so she took down that icon one day, that painting, and she took it to uh, an appraiser, and the appraiser appraised it as not just an icon painting, but it was, in fact, a 13th century masterpiece by whom many call the father of the Renaissance, the Florentine painter Chimoubier. And it then went to auction. It sold, no doubt, to the glee of her descendants, who she was trying to save some time and hassle, it sold for $26.6 million. Uh, I'm guessing that none of you have such a beautiful masterpiece uh, anywhere in your home, but you might want to check. Uh, something that you've disregarded because you didn't recognize its value. But I dare say that many of us have an even more beautiful masterpiece in our home, probably not hanging above our stovetop, it probably sits on a bookshelf or sits on the table beside our bed, and we don't quite value it as it should be valued. The context for our verses is that the writer of Hebrews, who despite Jeopardy Gate this week, is not Paul. But the writer of Hebrews is reflecting upon the Jews in the wilderness having received the promises of God. They have heard from God. They heard His Word and they have ignored this Word and it has been costly to them. It has been extremely costly to them. And so his concern is, is that as his readers are receiving this letter, and as they have heard the promises of God, and as we can say by extension us, having received this word, he is concerned that we know its value. That we receive it. And that we respond appropriately to its value. Five points this morning before we look at five applications. Five points. The Word of God is inspired, living, active, piercing, and disclosing. Five points. The Word of God is inspired, it is living, it is active, it is piercing. And is disclosing. First, the Word of God is inspired. Again, notice the context you'll remember from the previous weeks as we spent about three weeks looking at this. The writer of Hebrews has quoted from Psalm 95. And as he has quoted from Psalm 95, we have talked about over these weeks that Psalm 95 was a psalm of David. These were his words, David's words. But what the writer of Hebrews is pointing out now is that these were not just David's words. These were also God's words. And we have to hold on to both of these truths, both of these realities simultaneously. David wrote Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is David's heart prayer before God. 
But it's not just David's words. They are also God's words. David was moved by God to write those words. And not moved in the sense that he became some kind of machine who just took down what God told him to write. Not some kind of zombie or in some kind of entranced state where he lost his mind. But rather, God moved David in that he worked through David's intellect. He worked according to David's own personality. He worked through the man David to write words that were inspired by God. They are David's words and they are equally God's words. In 2 Timothy, a book Paul actually did write, 2 Timothy, he gives us some insight into this. He says, for the Scriptures, for all Scripture is breathed out by God. Peter will pick up this idea and he gives us a little more of insight into the inspiration of the Scriptures in 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 21, where he states this, For no prophecy, and by that he's meaning all the Scriptures, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They are David's words, and they are God's words. The Bible it's an amazing book. It's an amazing book. You have all of these different authors and all of these different personalities and all of these different genres of Scripture. On Michigan State University's campus, you will have professors that don't believe a thing about this book. And yet will teach this book in a literature class. Because it's an amazing book. But that's not primarily what makes it amazing. What makes it amazing is that the sovereign, holy God of heaven and earth speaks to you and I through these words. These are His words. It's inspired. Second, the Word of God is living. It's living. I quote to you every Sunday, and it's not as a mere formality, it's not to put on some kinds of bells and whistles after the reading of the Word of God. I quote for you every Sunday morning from Isaiah chapter 40. Peter will then quote it in 1 Peter. The grass withers, the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. It's living. It lasts. It's forever. So many things that you and I, that we highly value, have no eternal value. So many things that we want to hang and frame and that we want to center our lives around have no lasting value. This is lasting. This lives. Forever and ever. Now it's not that this, these pages themselves are inherently living. But rather, because Christ lives, 
And because He has life. And because these are His words and He is the giver of life. These pages, this book is living because by these words you can have life. It's living. Its purpose is to bring life. Bring life from death, to bring light from darkness, to bring a rebel to a child. It's living. It brings everlasting life. Third, the Word of God is active. These are not dead letters, they're active. Isaiah, God will say through the prophet of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 55, My word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. Or as I remember memorizing it when I was a college student years ago from the King James, my word does not return void. It's active. It's working. It is efficacious. It is always working. It's working this morning. You say, well, it doesn't always seem to be the case, Jason. That it's working, that it's efficacious. I can think of family and I can think of friends who have heard the word. or I can think of my own heart at times that hasn't responded favorably to the Word of God. The Jews in the wilderness in the context here in, in Hebrews 4 as he's looking back, they heard the promises of God and they didn't respond favorably to the Word of God. How is that effectual? Well, that leads to our fourth point. The Word of God is piercing. It's effectual, but not always to life. The word grants life, but it can also bring judgment. It's a reason that the writer of Hebrews says here that it is a two-edged sword. It has edges on both sides. This idea of the word being a sword, it's often pictured this way in Scripture. If you think about it in Revelation, Jesus, we have this image of the glorified Christ and from His mouth comes a sword. It's the Word of God. Or you think of that great chapter in Ephesians of the armor of God, the, the sword of the Spirit is what? It is the Word of God. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, he says it's a two-edged sword. It pierces, it cuts, but it can cut in one of two ways. When a surgeon cuts, he cuts to heal. But when an executioner cuts, he cuts in judgment. And as the Word goes out, it pierces. And it cuts. It can cut in that it heals, or it can cut in that it executes judgment. The Word works. Even this morning, as you're sitting here right now, over these next minutes, it's working. It doesn't return void. It's active right now. Many will, maybe even some here this morning, come to the Word and think I'm sitting in judgment over the Word. 
You're not sitting in judgment over the Word. The Word's sitting in judgment over you. That's how it works. And it's active this morning. In your life this morning. There are two options. You, You either receive it by faith and then it is a healing slide. Or you receive it with hardness of heart and then as a judging slice. It's active. As one theologian rightly said, he said, belief and unbelief, reception and rejection of God's Word are not primarily matters of the intellect. They are essentially moral issues. That is, you and I have a moral issue before us this morning. This is not an intellectual exercise. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's a cognitive part of our faith. We're speaking words and words are going out and they're coming in your ears and you're entertaining them in your minds and you're thinking upon them. And so there's a cognitive part of our faith. But it's not, in essence, an intellectual exercise. It isn't simply you and I grabbing a hold of arguments. It isn't you and I simply being convinced that this just makes sense. No, it's a moral decision you and I are making this morning. Will we receive this? Do we actually believe that that is a good word and it is right and it is true? You're making a moral decision this morning. It's always a moral decision, a matter of the heart. Hearts are being pierced, being cut one way or the other. And that leads to our fifth point. The Word of God is disclosing. He says it divides soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Some will try to make too much out of this verse and make arguments about whether we are made up of two parts or three parts as human beings. That's not his point in this verse. That's not what he is doing. The argument that is being made is that the very inner part of man is exposed by the Word of God. The Word is disclosing. It discerns our thoughts. It discerns our attitudes. It discerns our motivations and our intentions. And it lays us bare before the eyes of God. How you and I respond lays us bare before the eyes of God. We can fool one another. We can look the part. No one, none of you actually knows what's going on in this mind. None of you actually knows what motivates this heart. But God does. And as His Word goes out, it just fillets this heart open. Does He receive it in faith or does He not? Exposed. Naked, or we're always correcting my great aunts as a small child. They used to always say, Knocked, you're knocked. No, naked, you're naked. We're the eyes of God. There's no hiding from His knowing, there's no shadows that cloud His view, no obstacle we can erect, even in the heart 
that keeps him in ignorance. The word discloses. In fact, he knows what we often don't. Isn't it interesting that even my own heart and my own mind, I don't always know it. I can fool myself. I can even try and fool myself. Jeremiah would say the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. My own heart deceives me. I can make you a fool about me and I can even fool myself about me. But God has never made a fool. Never. He knows our hearts better than we do. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. He knows all. He knows all. A.W. Tozier wrote it this way. He said, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. And you think you aren't naked before Him? He knows it all. knows it all. One who is our creator, who is our sustainer, will also be our judge. And he knows it all. And that is the point of the writer here and what he is trying to make clear to us in verse 13. Each of us will have to give an account to this God who knows all. It's all encompassing language there. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed. We, meaning all, we must give an account. Just to make this absolutely clear so there's no misunderstanding here this morning. Every single one of us sitting in this room or live streaming this morning will have to give an account before him on that last day. You. And what do you have to give an account for? How you have received this word. And have you looked to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, and having received Him in faith, the promise that He extends to you by this word, have you then sought to live in faithfulness to Him? That's what we give an account for. The writer of Hebrews says, readers and us to listen and respond and abide by God's word. He's so concerned. He said, look, 
This is living. It's active. It's held out to you. All you have to do is receive those promises and live in light of those promises. And there's life. Don't you harden your hearts and lose the life that is given to you. As God's Word goes out, don't harden your hearts. It's actually meant to lead you to God. You're meant to draw near to Him as you hear His Word. I love how the Westminster Shorter Catechism sums up what the Scriptures are. It says, what do the Scriptures principally teach? And its answer is, the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God. And what duty God requires of man. I often think about that. Do you you realize this? He didn't have to tell you anything. He's not compelled to. There's nothing that forces him to tell you who he is. Or what it is that He desires from you. You are a sinner. You are a rebel who has held your fist up against Him. And it amazes me. It is an incredible sign of His gracious, loving care for His people. That He sends out His Word into the world. So that you and I would know who He is. So that we would know what it is that He requires from us. This is a gift beyond gifts. We don't know what we have. Hear the Word of God. We're meant to draw near to God. Instead of hardening our hearts in disobedience to Let me give you just quick five applications in light of this. First, treasure the Word of God. I don't know if it's a good thing or not that we all have 15 Bibles on our shelves at home. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. It's become so commonplace. I love the videos of when missionaries go to other countries and you see this often and they finally have translated the Word of God into that native tongue and you see the response. of those. I mean, there is laughing and there is crying and there is dancing. Why? Because they're no longer in darkness and they know it. They get to hear from God. Puritan John White said it this way, he said, the reading of Scripture is nothing else but a kind of holy conference with God. What a treasure. Some accuse Protestant Christians of making the Bible an idol as if we worship it instead of God, but you can't separate God from His Word. He is His promises to His people. He is a covenant-keeping God. You cannot esteem the Bible too much. You cannot pay too much attention to it. You cannot rely upon it too much. When you and I turn to God's Word, we 
turn to God. When we trust God's Word, we trust God. When we love God's Word, we love God. You can't value it too much. Listen to how David speaks about it in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And that it causes him to erupt with this. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. If you know what you have, then you treasure it. How can we not? Second, be diligent in the Word. Be diligent in the Word. There's nothing more needful for your soul to be in the Word of God. Nothing. Read it, study it, to meditate upon it. But you come here week in and week out to hear the Word of God read and to hear it preach, nothing is more needful for you. J.C. Ryle said it this way, he said, by reading that book, we learn what to believe, what to be, and what to do. How to live with comfort and how to die in peace. Happy is that man who possesses a Bible. Happier still is he who reads it. Happiest of all is he who not only reads it, but obeys it and makes it the rule of his faith and his practice. Be diligent in the Word. Start today. Today. Come up with a plan today and begin today. Don't come up with a plan today and start tomorrow. Come up with a plan today, start today. Be in the Word. God is speaking to you in His Word. Come here week in and week out to hear the word preached. God is speaking to you. Again, Ryle said it so well. The chief means by which men are built up and established in the faith is the Bible applied by the Spirit. It's able to cleanse them, to sanctify them, to instruct them in righteousness, and to furnish them thoroughly for all good works. The Spirit ordinarily does these things by the written word, Sometimes by the word read, sometimes by the word preach, but seldom, if ever, without the word. Be diligent in the word. You need it. I need it. The difference between life and death. It's the difference between light and darkness. It's the difference between peace and a mess. Third, have humility as you come to the Word. Have humility as you come to the Word. We never sit over the Word. The Word sits over us. That's why historically in Protestant churches for centuries, the, the pulpit would be elevated. 
so that you had a visual reminder when you came into the sanctuary that you were sitting under the Word. That you were looking up to hear the voice of God. You were not in judgment over it. It is in judgment over you. And so you sit under it. As you respect the Word, so you respect Christ. As you stiffen your neck when hearing the Word, so you stiffen your neck to Christ. Have humility when you come to the Word. Four. Allow the Word to search you. Stephen Charnock said long ago, a man may be theologically knowing and spiritually ignorant. May that not be true of us here. There are a lot of egghead Christians walking around. Read to be affected. Listen to sermons to be affected. Don't read to check a box. Don't read to store up information to teach others. Don't listen to sermons thinking how much that obnoxious sinner across the sanctuary in that pew over there needs to hear it. Don't listen critiquing the preacher no matter how much he is deserving. Listen to be affected. Allow the Word to search you. Your Heavenly Father is speaking to you. If I speak to one of my children and I'm telling them something and they are standing there at full attention and They are shaking their head up and down, but I look at them and I see that their eyes are glazed over and the reality is is that they're not listening to a thing that I'm saying. I'm not pleased by their standing at attention and shaking their head up and down. They're going through the motions. If I'm talking to one of my children and I'm instructing them and I give them some point that I want them to hear from me as their father and they say, oh dad, that is such an excellent point. We should go tell my brother or sister what you just said. They need to really hear that. I wouldn't be very encouraged. It's true that as you come here that God, by His Word, is speaking to your spouse and He's speaking to your children and He's speaking to that sinner across the room. But frankly, none of that is your concern. Your main concern is that He is speaking to you. Are you listening to your Father? Are you being affected by the Word when you're here. Allow the Word to search you. Finally, rely upon God to work by His Word. Rely upon God to work by His Word. The Word works. Rely upon it. Rely upon it in your life. Rely upon it in the lives of friends and family members around you. It works. I am not what I desire to be. Well, get your nose in the book. He works by His Word. Say, I can't 
believe the sin I committed last night, the sin I committed this week, the sin I have been dwelling in. Get yourself under the Word. He works by His Word. Say, I so badly want to see my children come to saving faith and want to see my neighbor come to know the joys of Christ. You rely upon the Word. You share the Word. He works by His Word. You can rely on that. I came across this illustration multiple times this week because it was an illustration that Spurgeon used while he was preaching this text. And he's grabbing a story from the life of George Whitfield. And you can read this account in the Dallimore biography on Whitfield, but George Whitfield was the great preacher of the First Great Awakening. And literally tens of thousands of people would come out to hear him preach in a pasture or in a field in Great Britain or here in the American colonies at the time as the First Great Awakening, this great movement of God is occurring. But it wasn't there weren't just people that were excited about this movement. There were also people that were very upset by this movement of God and, and were opposed to it and opposed to people like George Whitfield who were preaching. And one of the curiosities of history is that they started these different, what they called infidel societies. They were clubs of people that were opposed to the Great Awakening. One of those infidel societies was named the Hellfire Club. And they were created to mock Christianity. The members of the Hellfire Club would gather together regularly and they would do a mock service, Christian service. And they would act like one of the preachers and they would make fun of the preachers and then they would get drunk together and they would mock a Christian worship service. One of the members of the Hellfire Club was a man by the name of Thorpe. And Thorpe decided that he was going to go out and listen to George Whitfield preach so that he could perfect his caricature of George Whitfield. And so he went out to hear him preach. And he caught his cadence, he caught his tone, he caught his message, and, and he went back to the Hellfire Club. And in the following week, they were gathering together, and it was his opportunity to stand up and to be the preacher for that Hellfire Club meeting. So he stood up to do a caricature of George Whitfield, and as he opened up the Bible looking for a text to read, his eyes fell upon a text, and so he read it, and he said, Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And then he began to speak upon that text. But instead of mocking, he found himself affected by that text. Before he knew it, he was beginning to preach with earnest to all those who were members of the Hellfire Club, and he was actually converted by his own preaching. He then became a preacher, and was a preacher for decades. Word works. Spurgeon said, even... The scoffer may be reached by the arrows of truth. God works by His Word. You can rely on it. There's nothing more reliable in this world than His Word. 
I want to remind you of that this week. Because this is a hard week for some of you. Some of us. Go to be with family for a Thanksgiving brouhaha. You sit around the table with family members that haven't believed this. So often we sit down and we think, oh, we've got we to win them over by our niceness as we come together for Thanksgiving. Or we've got to win them over by, i just got to come up with the right argument. To, no. Arguments, reason can be helpful to clear away some debris. Being nice, of course, clears away some debris. But God works by His Word. So you're looking for little opportunities Thanksgiving week with your family just to scatter little seeds of the Word. Here and there, where He opens a door, just to uh, share the Word. All the pressure is not on you. He works by His Word. You don't need to stress out this week. The pressure is not on you. He works by His Word. You just share as you have opportunity here and there. The little seed. For some of you, that would be gathered with family members that you have sowed the seeds for years. The most painful is adult children that we're gathering together with that have not seized upon this word. They've hardened their hearts to these truths. Don't you give up. God works by His word. You sowed seeds of the Word. And you continue to trust and rely upon Him working by His Word. And you water that Word with your prayers. And you just keep praying. And you water that Word with your prayers. And by God's grace, that Word will produce the fruit of faith. You don't ever give up. Keep sharing the Word. Keep sowing the seeds of the Word. And you keep watering the Word with your prayers. No one is too far gone. He's given us Word that is living and active. It imparts life. It's at work. It doesn't return void. Father, we are thankful for your exceeding kindness, revealing yourself to us, revealing what it is that you desire from us. Oh, may we not harden our hearts. The nation did at the waters of Meribah, as they did on the banks of the Jordan River. May we find that our hearts are soft, fertile soil for the implanting of your word and that we are seizing upon your promises, that we are looking to Christ in faith, and that we are seeking to live more and more in light of the word that we have received. To bring life where there is only death. To bring light where there is darkness. We're thankful that you are a God who is worthy of our trust. A God who speaks to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.